Creating the space within the management team to revisit assumptions and celebrate agility and changing direction and admitting that an assumption or a conclusion was wrong based on current information is just a critical piece when you're in these extreme uncertain situations. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. In a time of crisis, especially one as extensive and unique as this global pandemic, uncertainty can increase exponentially while realities on the ground can change daily. As you just heard from Patrick Finn, one of our guests today, leading effectively through such periods requires a willingness to set aside egos, admit errors, and move quickly to correct them. Our topic today is how to manage your organization amidst extreme uncertainty. And joining us are three McKinsey experts who are helping guide their clients through the current crisis. Patrick is a senior partner in our Detroit office and a leader in our health systems and services practice. He serves management teams on a broad range of topics, including corporate and business unit strategy, go-to-market strategy, risk management, and operations. Mihir Masoor is a partner in our Houston office. He's one of McKinsey's most experienced leaders in crisis response, and he's helped a number of major organizations manage operational risk, stabilize crisis situations, and build resilience. Joining Mihir and Patrick is Ophelia Usher, an expert based in our Stamford, Connecticut office, who specializes in topics related to resilience, crisis preparedness, and crisis response and recovery. Today, they will share some of the insights from their recent article, When Nothing is Normal, Managing in Extreme Uncertainty. We'll include a link to the article in the description of this podcast, and you can also find it on McKinsey.com. Patrick, Mihir, and Ophelia, welcome. We look forward to speaking with you about how you've been helping your clients navigate through the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting uncertainty. Patrick, let's start with you, as you likely have been closest to the front lines, given your work with healthcare organizations. How has this crisis been different from the earlier ones you've experienced? How has this crisis been different from the earlier ones that you've helped your clients navigate? We have long helped uh, our clients in managing contained crisis events where there's uncertainty about an industry, a particular event in a country, a particular crisis uh, that has happened to, to, to a particular institution. But, you know, this last year has put us all in a, in a quite unique position of a complex set of uncertainty that has run across the health system, across all corners of our economy, across lives and livelihoods of, of nearly everyone around the world. And so it is absolutely unique in all of our lifetimes in, in dealing with this. I think we all know the last year has not looked like the calm, regular set of waves hitting a beach, but rather being in the middle of a hurricane with waves coming from all directions of all size and shape uh, uh, across a number of issues, right? And, and if we think about that, that complexity that's come at us, um, you know, and we start with just the disease itself, right, and kind of the initial wave of, of impact of that, and frankly, the wave that's come. The number of uncertainties were just incredible. If, you know, for those of us in the United States, as this started to hit us last March, and you kind of looked forward at what the expectations were in terms of number of hospitalizations, numbers of number of deaths, number of deaths, et cetera, as, and as tragic as that, as that is, 
the projections for that were absolutely, or, or scenarios for that were absolutely all over the map. Orders of magnitude difference in, in what the progression of that could look like. When was it going to be, when was it going to be done, right? What was going to happen to our, to our businesses? And I'll point out that, you know, even today that uncertainty remains. If we move to the economic impacts of that, you know, just in terms of where traffic was going to come from, how long businesses were going to be closed, right? That has been a on and off phenomenon across the country for a long time. Work from home, right? How, how are we going to keep various businesses actually running in a remote place, right? And managing through that, and when are we going to be able to come back to work? And then, you know, maybe maybe the, the uncertainty yet to come is, you know, what what is the new normal? You know, what we've learned from from past crises is things like this tend to reshape you know, uh, entire economies, right? And so, you know, if you think about the even little trends we've seen to date, migration from the coast to the middle of the country, the acceleration of move to online for commerce, the explosion in telehealth, what will this mean as we get back to normal? What will education look like? We've, um, we've learned an incredible amount about what can be done in terms of remote education. How will that play out as we move to in-person education? And, you know, I think all that to say, We've had massive displacements in terms of the health of our population, the way our economy functions, uh, industries are being reshaped. We've seen three or four waves of that over the last year, and that's only the beginning. And, you know, the pandemic has been fairly unique for us in that, in that this is a large degree of daily change over a long period of time, right, which is very different than a typical corporate crisis where, you know, there is an event, you know, that may have some knock-on effects, but largely the uncertainty is contained within a short period of time, and then we can manage the fallout from that over time. Right on the other, on the other side of this in, you know, long duration uh, of change, but low, you know, low daily magnitude of change, you know, the, the, the climate crisis and, and right, how that is on playing is in that. And that's, as we know, very hard to manage. Uh, but, you know, the COVID pandemic is unique in that this is high degree of change over a long period of time. So we as management teams need to understand how we deal with assumptions that can change on a certainly weekly and maybe even daily basis. And frankly, you know, the, the management systems that we have all become accustomed to uh, over many, many years actually don't deal well with that level of uncertainty. Indeed, it has certainly been a year like no other, and it's been a high degree of change over a long period of time and on a global scale. If we look back to the beginning of this crisis, as well as other prior crises, Patrick, are there any early indicators that business leaders should keep an eye on to start preparing for future crisis situations? Yeah, I mean, uh, so, some of these have early warnings. Some of them, frankly, don't, uh, right? And, 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 you know, while some folks, if you take the COVID example, were certainly, you know, watching what was happening to their supply chains in China in particular and had some early warning for what was happening. And you could tell that the early preparation helped, right? I, you know, I think in, in many of these, you've just got to be in a position to be able to to move to a, uh, you know, crisis management footing in hours or days. And in some, sure, we'll have the luxury of, of, of you know, being able to ramp, ramp up 
that over weeks or months as we see it unfolding in other parts of the world. But, you know, in many, you know, immediate uh, 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 crises that happen in the corporate world, you just have to move quickly. So while you can't plan for every eventuality, you can invest in advance of a crisis to put that capability in place in order to respond quickly in the future. Um, Mahir, are there specific challenges or blind spots that leaders need to be particularly conscious of when they confront a crisis and need to rapidly stage a response? I remember being in this conversation four years ago with uh, the leader of an advanced manufacturer, right, a global advanced manufacturer with deep engineering and technical expertise. You know, the, the, the whole distinctiveness that they had was founded on the quality of their technical expertise. And they were facing a very large, a very visible product failure issue in, in, in one of their one of their largest markets. And and the, and, and and they had a choice between either uh, essentially issuing a recall, uh, you know, for the product, or fixing the product. Right. So they would either they, they would either take them all back, or or, or 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 they would fix them sort of on site, as it were. And the economic analysis suggested that under a wide range of scenarios, having a recall would be the wiser counsel. Yeah? And the leadership rejected that outright because they said, you know, we are one of the premier engineering organizations on the planet. We are not going to admit defeat and issue a recall. We will get this issue fixed and we will, you know this is not going to go into that scenario. And to me, that was the classic example of optimism, optimism bias, right? Which is, which is the first issue. And optimism bias tends to be a powerful force in any organization, but in a crisis, just given how emotional they are and how strongly people feel about the underlying challenges, it tends to be an extremely powerful force. The second challenge is is informational instability. I don't know how many of you remember the the days and the weeks in late January, early February, leading to uh, significant community transmission starting in Europe and then the United States uh, in 2020 of last year for COVID. But the conversation back then was very much around, hey, you know, COVID is actually not that severe. Um, you know, you can just do a temperature check and that can help prevent its spread, uh, you know, et cetera. And part of this can be explained by information bias. But, but, but the other part of this is actually a technical piece, right, where many crises have a technical heart, right? Whether you're talking about oil wells in the middle of the ocean, whether you're talking about products that are not functioning the way they're intended, whether you're talking about viruses, right, the problem starts to get discovered over time. And that creates a significant source of uncertainty in terms of information that seems to get worse every day as you get more information in. And, and let me, here, let me, other, let me, let me yeah, just let me just maybe add on this informational instability. Uh, this is a this is a real challenge in that both the human brain and you know our kind of uh, uh, largely instituted management systems have a difficult time dealing with the range of uncertainty and information. For those of you in publicly traded companies, right, we're managing quarterly earnings to a penny. Yet, if you looked in 
March, April, May, frankly, even through this year and even to now, the range of uncertainty on a number of dimensions of the disease itself. What is the actual uh, prevalence rate in the community? What, uh, uh, you know, where will case volumes go, uh, uh, et cetera? Uh, the, the level of uncertainty is high, and we need to deal in scenarios as opposed to certainty and projections. And that is, that is a very difficult switch to make in these, in these kinds of crises. That's, that's well said, Patrick. I, I couldn't agree more. And the other accompanying part of that reality is the fact that many times these significant uncertain situations need solutions to be invented, not implemented. You can't just pick up a solution from a shelf and talk about implementing it. You actually have to scale back all the way to saying, okay, what is the right solution? And do we understand the basic tenets of the problem that we are trying to solve? And, and that can create a significant challenge as well in many companies that are frankly not set up to do that. The challenge that ends up happening in many situations, particularly for executives, right, is that they have a, a very powerful intuition for acting in a certain way based on pattern recognition, their understanding of stakeholders, their understanding of the markets. The challenge that happens in a crisis is, number one, that your stakeholders, people that you may have known for a really long time, right, whether it's your employees, whether it's your uh, suppliers, whether it's regulators, with whom many of, uh, many of these folks you will have a really good relationship with, start behaving in ways that they haven't behaved towards you before. And, and a lot of it may not be direct, by the way, but it might be indirect, right? So I can give you examples of employees that chose to leak information and go external versus voicing their concerns internally first. We can talk about executives engaging in turf wars at the moment of a crisis. We can talk about boards seeking to take control in, in opportune moments. All of these things are, are, are real challenges that can happen in a crisis. And, uh, and, and pattern recognition right, that executives have may no longer be valid uh, from previous experiences. And that basically ends up in them potentially having the wrong answer, frankly. And so what we tend to find very helpful in, in these situations is to create a forum where the, whenever it feels like we are landing to, towards an answer, you force the decision-making body, the decision-making group to really think about what are the assumptions that lie behind this being the right answer and what would it take for this to be exactly the wrong answer, actually. And, and to create that forum, to set ego to one side, to set emotions to one side, all of which, by the way, is practically very hard to do, right? But, but, but if you can get there, you, we usually find that answers end up getting modified, getting changed, and you end up pointing in a different direction than you had originally believed when you walked into that door. Yeah, let me maybe add to that one as well. So, so this is another really, I think, really important one where, again, our normal style of operating tends to lock these sorts of things in, right? So, so if you are the leader of a business unit, you typically commit to some plan uh, during budget season, and then the entire management of that through the year is doing everything you possibly can to achieve the outcome that you planned to achieve. In extreme uncertainty, that may be exactly the wrong thing to do. And the ability of an executive to admit 
that the direction of travel that they were moving down is wrong because the underlying information has changed is a challenging piece to overcome. And so for all of us as leaders, as Mahir was describing, creating the space within the management team to revisit assumptions and celebrate agility and changing direction and admitting that an assumption or a conclusion was wrong based on current information is just a critical piece when you're in these extreme uncertain situations. Thanks, Patrick. So when you don't know what the right answer is, how do you prevent your organization from either overreacting or perhaps even more dangerously underreacting? Ophelia, what are your thoughts on this? Absolutely. So all of the bias we just talked or talking through that are definitely things that um, can affect how you react. So the key thing here is what I'm hearing is the angst around how do you overreact? And there is absolutely a risk of overreacting, but there's just as much a risk of underreacting. And so the key thing here is about how you approach the question. One of the key things is the idea of discovery. So it is not when you're discovering, when you're looking for the answer, it's not taking the action. But first, you're opening up the possibility of what assumptions do you believe and are they true? So we here mentioned testing, pressure testing, knowing what information is stable and what information is instable. So first, you've got to discover. Then the second is you have to design around that. You don't always act on everything. Patrick brought this up on scenarios. So looking at the different scenarios and then looking at the common themes. Is there something that is a worst-case scenario? And what would you take in action to reduce that risk? What are their no-regrets actions across all the scenarios? And so that is how you help to sort of avoid this underreaction or overreaction, is really reframing the way you think about the question around scenarios and what are the types of scenarios you need to be planning for and how are you thinking about that? I'd agree with what Ophelia said. And, you know, this is a little bit of accepting that um, there is no such thing as a forecast. There are scenarios uh, when, when you're dealing with extreme uncertainty. And you can frame that range of potential scenarios. And it is about what is the hierarchy of no regret actions. I distinctly remember a colleague of mine back in May making an impassionate plea as, as there was a uh, there was an argument going on uh, amongst our uh, epidemiology team to understand what is the actual impact of, of masks on disease spread. And his answer was, it doesn't matter. If it's, if it's 5% effective or 90% effective, it is a low-cost option that is effective in almost any go-forward scenario, right? It, you know, even if there's low upside, it's relatively low cost. One of the ways in which we like to frame these things is to say, okay, is this a decision that is around stabilization? Or is this a decision around resolution, right? And you need to separate these two things in a crisis. It is generally okay to overreact in terms of stabilization. (laughs) But when it comes to resolution-type decisions, you you need to make sure that you're not overreacting because you might end up pulling yourself into something irreversible that you can't undo in the future. So um, so what do I mean by overreacting and stabilization? Most organizations tend to underweight the need to reach out to stakeholders, the need to connect with them early, the need to connect with them often. So really making sure that anything that you're doing in terms of stabilization is on point and frankly can feel a bit bit like an overreaction at times is still the right bias to have. However, really what you want to prevent is overreacting and moving into a decision that you can't then reverse in the future. 
stabilization decisions are relatively speaking most of the time easily reversible but resolution decisions right how do you how do you actually do you do the recall uh, or not right that kind of decision that i was talking about earlier uh, much harder to reverse the masks decision uh, right is easy again uh, you know uh, to patrick's point decisions on vaccines for example may be much harder in terms of uh, reversibility Thanks, Mihir. And how do you balance this informational instability with the need for quick action? In other words, if the information is changing rapidly and it's difficult to make decisions, you might just end up doing nothing, which could probably be the worst reaction of all. Yeah. The general takeaway from informational instability is to get grounded in the scenario-based thinking that Ophelia mentioned, right? And what we do there is is to is to have a bit of a point of view on which way you know what's around the corner it's very very difficult to predict a crisis right but once you have once you conduct the right kind of facilitated sessions it's generally not that hard to actually lay out hey here are the two or three possible paths along which the crisis could evolve based both on stakeholder actions as well as primary resolution pathways right so things like Here's how the legal pathway might evolve. Here's how the financial pathway might evolve, the operational pathway, et cetera. So, so once you craft uh, these, these, these basic scenarios, it, it, it is generally okay to, uh, to then say, okay, what now is the no regret thing that we can do? And there are usually a set of no regret actions. Reaching out to stakeholders is an example, right? But then there may be others which are, uh, which are bigger decisions. And what we typically do for those is construct trigger-based decisions. In other words, you say, okay, if this particular thing happens, what is the decision we would take then? And then what are the early warning indicators, right? What are the triggers under, uh, what are the conditions under which that decision becomes valid? And then you have someone monitor to see if that decision is coming true or not. And usually there are, you know, there aren't a lot of these, there are maybe five to seven big decisions that really matter. And you want to make sure that somebody's monitoring, that, you, that the organization knows what those five to seven decisions are, and somebody's monitoring for when might be the right time to make that decision. Constructing that trigger-based roadmap is generally the way we think about the balance between informational instability and paralysis by analysis. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I'd say, look, a lot of that is how do you continually take in new information? How do you use that to understand whether your scenarios still hold or if there are you know, better or less favorable scenarios that exist that the new information implies. And so it's all about, you know, do the scenarios that we're, we're using for, to describe the range of outcomes still hold or not? That is the, uh, what you're trying to do with new information as it comes in. And then as Mahir said, it's a mix of what are the no regret actions? The piece I would add to that is, you know, what are the actions you take to stave off basically the catastrophic case, right? So in practical terms, that may be, you know, what, what, what do you need to secure early in terms of liquidity arrangements for worst case scenarios, right? And, and so, you know, it is a bit of the mix of those two things as you're working your way through the scenarios. Got it. Thanks, Patrick. So how do leadership teams prepare so that they're well-equipped to act appropriately when this kind of unexpected and extreme uncertainty actually hits? 
One of the most undervalued tools in managing extreme uncertainty is this concept of an early warning system. The term early warning system conjures up an image of, uh, you know, extremely high tech, fast moving data, you know, lots of people analyzing it, coming up with brilliant insights. But really what we mean by this is the following. The vast majority of crises that go on to become, you know, truly existential for their organizations are actually not coming out of the blue for many of those organizations. There are definitely some, okay, which came completely out of the blue and there was no precedent, but those are relatively few. Even COVID, right? When you really think about whether similar things have happened in the past, the answer is yes. When you think about, um, you know, whether back in, you know, in, in March or April, whether it was something which was already relative, you, you sort of knew the basic shape of the virus by that point, the answer is, you know, definitely not completely, but uh, how pervasive it was was known at least within some parts of the world. Arguably, other parts of the world didn't uh, didn't use those toolkits, you know, as effectively, uh, right? Um, uh, that were identified quite early on. So, so there are definitely that there is there is a broad lesson around making sure that you're paying attention to the clues that matter and have a mechanism for filtering out the noise. That is the hardest part of an effective early warning system, and, and setting it up is, is definitely one way to try to prevent um, uh, the, the extreme uncertainty as well as manage it more effectively. The second is this concept of an integrated nerve center, where you have a very small group of decision makers, most frequently in near constant connection with board members and other folks that can drive the decision making effectively and can make large decisions fast on behalf of the whole organization. In many ways, it represents the state of emergency for a company. And being clear about what does this nerve center look like for your organization? What are the decision rights and how do they shift in an emergency versus in day-to-day -day business is quite important to ensuring that this runs effectively when the moment comes. In most organizations, there is a bit of a presumption that things will work just fine when an emergency comes, which frequently does, just doesn't end up being true. Um, and, and so doing some level of practicing and simulations and building the muscle right uh, in, in the top team of being able to manage this is quite critical. There are also real practices around how do you actually launch escalations? How do you take the top 100 managers in a company and help them um, speak to their families and tell them, look, for the next 90 days, it's going to be very difficult from a lifestyle standpoint, right? There's a whole mechanism for truly switching over uh, the top, top leaders of a company that many organizations just don't have or haven't thought of. And then finally, transparent operating principles. There is another word for this, which is values, right? Making sure that you are really thinking about what in your organization needs to get addressed. What are the values you're going to use as you go through the crisis? And how do those values translate into practical decision-making criteria as you go through the crisis, not just impact on yourself individually, but on the entire company, as well as the broader community in which you operate? Got it. So in a situation where you have this level of uncertainty over a longer term period with no end in sight, imagine people can become somewhat pessimistic and pessimism can become toxic. How do you ensure that the organization from a just from a mental health and leadership perspective maintains its resilience throughout the period of extreme uncertainty and and what are some of the skill sets that leaders need in order to act in the way that you're recommending 
that's a really great question. Uh, I was once speaking with the chairman, and we were talking about uh, CEOs and how you choose CEOs um, and, and one of the criteria for that. And, and one of the comments he made stuck with me is he said, you know, I will never hire someone as a CEO who hasn't dealt with a personal or professional tragedy in their lives and emerged out of it. And I thought that was really important. And I think it's really important for this question because we have seen time and time again that sort of superstars that haven't had to deal with, with significant setbacks are actually not that great when it comes to crisis. Now, I'm aware I'm making a very broad, very general statement, but the rules of thumb matter in this case. You want to have people that have a track record of recovering from, from tough situations. So the kind of people you choose to be part of the core team, that, that ends up being an important criteria for resilience is do you have a group of people that have recovered from these situations before? Patrick? Yeah, no, I'd agree. So, so uh, the framing I often use in, in addition to resilience is you need leaders who are able to absorb and amplify only when it drives the organization forward. Right, um, amplifying and and you know creating massive amounts of activity in the organization when you're dealing with extreme uncertainty leads to burnout. Right, you actually need a leader who can absorb information, absorb challenges uh, as they come in, and then pick the places to to amplify, create pressure in the organization, and drive to action. And, and recognize that, you know, some actions are just going to have to fall off the plate. I think there's another, though, just the practical reality, you know, as you're thinking about how do you plan for this team, the trust of the rest of the management team is incredibly important. And this is, as Mahir kind of pointed out, one of the roles of the integrated nerve center is to actually make decisions happen quickly, which implies in some cases some short-circuiting of normal syndication and decision-making processes to get to the ultimate decision-makers more quickly. If the person leading that isn't trusted in terms of, you know, their interests being 100% aligned with the interests of the organization as a whole, it creates real challenges. And so, you know, there is something to cultivating uh, the leader, uh, you know, as resilient, uh, able to absorb, right, uh, you know, kind of consistently aligned with the benefits of the organization over themselves, right? It's, it's, it is a tough role to fill, but those are some of the criteria I think you look for in this. Thanks, Patrick. And so as an executive team starts to realize that a crisis is setting in, what are some of the concrete steps or phases that they should be planning for to navigate the crisis? Ophelia? It's really important to keep three dimensions. There's the discover, design, and execute. All of us think about all the things we have to execute on in a crisis. But there's two important dimensions that when you're under extreme uncertainty, drive what you should execute on. So we talked about this idea of scenarios. We talked about the idea that you were going to have a lot of instability in the information. Things are going to be changing. So one of the important things that's going to be critical to that integrated nerve center we talked about and the leadership as a whole is the ability to discover, to ask questions, to be doggedly trying to understand what assumptions they need to pressure test, what assumptions are still holding. No assumption can become sacred. So this is a key thing in terms of who's going to be part of that core team is they have to have that mindset and that mindset of discovery to asking questions. 
Because if you get focused on it, you're going to end up narrowing down your scenarios too quickly and missing the evolution of where this extreme uncertainty could go. And so that's the important thing. And then the designing. As Mahir had mentioned, a lot of this stuff, you're going to have to design from scratch. There's going to be elements here that you've never done before. It doesn't match any of your pattern recognition. It doesn't match how the organization has operated. And so being able to think about how you're going to design that, what are the potential solutions, and then executing on it. And the key thing here is that this is an iterative process. If you get stuck and don't continue to do this, this is where your integrated nerve center starts to break down and you start to miss and start to see those biases creep back into the operations. And then the strategic moves. Mihir and Patrick both mentioned the no regrets moves that cover all your scenarios, the things that might address that worst case scenario, but also monitoring and doing what are those strategic things? If this scenario comes true, what action should we take? So first we've got to discover what is true then keep verifying assumptions and then design responses based on our take on the different scenarios. So then is, is the final stage then execution and putting those plans into action? You're going to have things on cash and financial stabilization. Those are all important things that you need to be doing, but they need to be doing them in response to the potential scenarios you're facing, in response to what would be the key strategic action of the organization as a whole. As you think about this, these are really the key elements, not only in thinking about who are the right people to be in that integrated nurse center, but how do you actually start to address those biases we talked about, start to address that stress that's created by the extreme uncertainty. Okay, can you talk a little bit more about how to create this nerve center and how it actually operates? Maintaining intense diligence during a, an extended crisis can actually lead people to burn out, right? Burnout is really a critical problem when we come to extreme uncertainty. And so there's a couple key things that are going to be there. One, making sure you've got the right decision makers in the room. If you have to be dealing with a fire drill on the execution side each day, but you are also the person responsible for scenario planning, it's going to be really hard. Scenario planning is easily going to take a backseat. So making sure, first of all, that you've got the right team to start with and that they have the right responsibilities. So for example, the person who is doing that scenario planning, their job is to be forward looking. Their job is not to fight the fire of what the question is today. Then there is a question about that long-term sustainability. And that is really important is that you need to be always asking the question, is there a need to adjust the individual over time? The second thing is over time, you're going to want to democratize this process. So initially, we're going to start with a small core people who have those decision rights and can make those decisions quickly. So there's not a lot of the bureaucratic turn, but instead the focus is on the learning, the discovery, the design, the execute, and being able to quickly turn on that. Over time, as the frequency of the uncertainty starts to decrease, who else can get involved? That's where you start to think about which things can go back to the broader organization and which things need to stay with this integrated team. And so, for example, in those first couple of days where you maybe had a workforce that had never worked from home, so you'd never had an operating model that even thought about that, there's a lot of uncertainty there, a lot of it. But then after a month or two, as you've gotten people established, you've figured out what's feasible at home. That could be something that maybe does not belong in this integrated room, but instead is democratized back to a team who can run it on a more day-to-day basis. And so you can see that as things, as the uncertainty morphs, 
things can be removed out of there. So the same team isn't owning the same responsibilities, but instead they're the ones focused on the new stuff, the stuff you're learning about, and you're taking out those others and helping spread them across the organization. Okay. And as you've pointed out, responding effectively to a crisis really requires speeding up the pace of decision-making. But now many leaders are thinking about how to keep some of that accelerated pace after the crisis passes and, and broadening that agile decision-making approach across their organizations. How do you recommend going about that? Do you replicate the nerve center approach or do you do something different? Often in crisis, right, part of the, part of the need of this nerve center team is to be able to make cross-cutting decisions very quickly and get things done. And frankly, we have had many executives ask us over the last year, how can I lock in the speed of decision-making that happened during this time period? Which is a really interesting question. The short answer is you can't rely on the nerve center to do that because they will burn out, right? And so how do you start to democratize the transparency of information, the agility of decision-making, the willingness to say I was wrong and move directions and get that agility into the broader management team. But it's really important in the crisis to not get overly enthralled with the speed of decision-making in the nerve center team and ask them to take on too much. You know, it it is more about how do you start to get that decision-making culture broadly into the organization as opposed to putting it all on the, on the nerve center team. Thanks. This is the final question on nerve centers. What type of person and at what level of seniority in the organization should be chosen as the leader of this integrated nerve center? That's a great question. So picking your leader is really important. It is someone that is trusted both above and below them. And this is, I think, a really important point. This is something that the board and the senior, like, they trust to take action and make these decisions. And someone that the people that are going to be part of that integrated nerve center also trust that they have that that collaborative process in place. There are managers within the organization who manage supply chain incidents, who manage that. But this integrated thing is really about a whole business crisis. And so the person that's going to lead that is going to be someone very senior who is really able to be that decision maker and to then be able to engage with the board or those individuals. Yeah, so it often is a senior executive who is essentially the sponsor of it, right? That that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that there's not also a crisis manager who is running the cadence of it, right, keeping all the complex logistics moving, right? That is an important role as well, but it, it can't just be that uh, crisis manager person who is, you know, keeping the trains of the nerve center running on time. It does need a real trusted executive sponsor, as, as, as Ophelia noted, and that person is likely spending you know, nearly 100% of their time. That is often not the CEO because it is 100% of their time. And the CEO actually has other responsibilities that, that need to happen within that, which is why you have a trusted senior executive sponsor uh, uh, of the nerve center itself who is almost fully dedicated to it. The point that Patrick and Ophelia make about internal trust is especially important, right? If you select a nerve center sponsor or leader who doesn't have an internal reputation for good judgment, values-based thinking and decision-making, and an ability to move the organization forward, whether it's by calling in favors or other things like that, these leaders relatively quickly end up being ineffective. 
Okay, thank you. And 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 so as companies start to return to more normalcy in how they operate, how can leaders transition the organization back from crisis mode and stand down their nerve centers? And should they keep some of these measures and practices in place permanently, given that we're living in an increasingly volatile and uncertain world? I would say if you were to pick one thing to keep on this, the idea of monitoring is a really important because that is going to tell you what is coming down the pipeline. So really thinking about what things are going to be impactful to your organization and monitoring those, those actively every day is an important thing to keep in mind. Patrick, come here. Yeah, I just say, look, the, the signaling to the organization of the day that, that you can stand down the nerve center itself is a is a watershed uh, moment of celebration for the organization, right? And so we all uh, look forward to the day when these stand down. The combination of the monitoring, thinking about scenarios, the radical transparency within the management team of, of you know, issues facing the organization and, and how we're getting ahead of them and and how we don't get into analysis by paralysis. I think that is a, a little bit of the art, which is how, how do you now in the management team adopt, you know, more of an open dialogue conversation type operating model as that nerve center starts to wind down. I would 100% agree. You know, ultimately, I guess one one broad thought and one broad takeaway that we have is the the playbook for how to manage extreme uncertainty is not a playbook that is actually taught or, frankly, tested as many executives um, are, are learning and growing. And so we, we believe that really thinking this through, understanding that it might be an important toolkit that is not fully embedded in the organization is quite critical for driving value and stabilizing the institution as disruptions occur. Thank you, Patrick, Mihir, Ophelia. It was really great having you with us. Thank you again for taking the time. And thank you to everybody who's joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. I also want to note that we've included a link to Mihir, Ophelia, and Patrick's McKinsey.com article, When Nothing is Normal, Managing in Extreme Uncertainty, in the description of this podcast. You can find the transcript of this conversation on our Inside the Strategy Room page on McKinsey.com, where you can also easily explore, filter, and search our entire library of more than 50 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at McKinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on McKinsey.com follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.